The biggest gaming weekend of the year is finally here. It's the Midwest Gaming Classic in downtown Milwaukee, Wisconsin. With over 150,000 square feet of retro and modern home video game consoles, pinball machines, arcade games, tabletop, and more. Meet industry entertainers from the video game industry, such as YouTubers, artists, and gaming professionals. Kids 9 and under are free. Grab your tickets online at MidwestGamingClassic.com. Welcome to the next level. Hello, and welcome to Episode 9 of the Midwest Gaming Classic Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Garris, Panel Director of the Midwest Gaming Classic. After several years being apart as co-workers at Gottlieb, Jeff Lee and Tom Melanowski are together again to discuss the development and history of the very rare Gottlieb arcade game, Argus. Near the end of the panel, special guest David Thiel talks about how he created the sound design for the game. Galloping Ghost Arcade owner Doc Mack also makes a brief appearance, as he's the one who resurrected this unreleased arcade game that can exclusively be played at his arcade in Brookfield, Illinois. This was the 500th game to be added to the Galloping Ghost Arcade floor on March 12, 2016, which was one month prior of its appearance at the panel you were about to watch. Enough of me talking. Let's get to the panel. I'm very lucky that a few years ago I was put in touch with Jeff Lee, who is the creator of Qbert. And he has a ton of Gottlieb history and people that worked with him at Gottlieb that want to share that history. And this year he came to me and he had said, Dan, we'd love to put together a panel about the making of Argus, which is an unreleased game from Gottlieb that I worked on. And our response, of course, was, that sounds cool. And then it sounded even cooler when he told us that Doc from Galloping Ghost Arcade was going to bring the first functioning prototype of this game that they had remade that would be going public shortly after the Midwest Gaming Classic to the show to show during their speech. So this remade classic would be there as well as both Jeff and Tom, two of the main creators for this game, to be able to talk about its history. So in this panel you'll see them talk about that history in of making this extremely rare arcade game and you'll get to see the game in action for one of the first times. I'm Jeff Lee. Um, I was a artist at uh, Gottlieb back in the 80s, and um, last year I got in contact with uh, my old colleague Tom Malinowski here, who was a programmer at that same time. And uh, the game you're seeing here, Argus, was uh, Tom's first project at Gottlieb, and my second project, but the first one used, utilizing our uh, full-blown graphics board and uh, at the time we hadn't seen each other in many years uh, we met at the uh, Wizard World Comic-Con and at that time uh, I was there a guest of Doc Mack of the Galloping Ghost Arcade and we discussed the possibility of resurrecting Argus and uh, so it has come to pass uh, Doc and his team uh, 
scavenged a bunch of parts and I made some new art. Uh, we had to call in some old hands to help us out with some of the issues uh, that we had. And not everything is solved with this. There's still little problems with, with the soundboard. Uh, but it's all coming along. So Tom is going to uh, step up and he has a little presentation to show us of uh, the resurrection here and the history of the game. Hello. So Tom? Hey, uh, well, as Jeff said, I'm a long-time arcade game designer, uh, programmer, and uh, amateur historian. So uh, I'm going to give you a bit of a history lesson here that is pretty my history lesson. And uh, it's all up here like an old-style preacher. Let's start with a... Uh, a uh, verse from the history of computers. In the beginning, man created an app. Uh, if any of you have uh, seen the recent movie uh, uh, Imitation Game, it was about Alan Turing, who was like the first, world first digital programmer. And he took uh, the extremely primitive uh, electronics and created a computer out of it. And uh, with that, he uh, broke the almost unbreakable uh, uh, code that the Germans used to transmit messages to all their, their uh, ships and troops and such. That movie kind of covered two of my favorite subjects. Uh, one, of course, being computers, uh, and the other being you know the history of World War II. By the end of the 40s, that's what a modern computer looked like. Like a scene from Dr. Frankenstein's lab pretty uh, frightening, but the era that you all, I assume, like the electronics of today, we started in a room like that, long before any of us were born, I think. I think. <laughs> but anyways, um, continuing my uh, history lesson on this thing here, um, does any of you have a memory like this, where you were sitting around listening to a council radio, you know, to no. shows, <laughs> shows like the... Uh, Shadow, I don't, but if any of you do, you're way older than me. But this used to be family entertainment. I think for me, and almost everyone, certainly Jeff uh, qualifies, I think uh, I was the first uh, generation to be raised on television. That's what television was like in the 50s. I remember something a little bit more modern than that, but that was our era. And uh, everybody in this room has lived and died on television, but uh, more to the point. Uh, does anyone remember a time when there was no home computers? I do. He does. Anyone else? Hard to believe you have home computers. I, I, when I was 20 years old, this was the modern home computer. The one on the left is an uh, IBM million dollar computer that only rich corporations could buy. And if you were a little bit rich, you know, a million dollar corporation could afford a hundred, two hundred thousand portable computer on the left. This is a DEC PDP-11. Needless to say, no middle class person owned either one of these. Home computers did not exist when I was 20 years old. So, um, because of the space program, although I never made it there, uh, geniuses of that era created the first microcomputer. And this is one of them. This is the 8088. There was a Z80, 2 and later on the 8088, which is in the Argus itself. But that's the first chip. It's not much bigger than like four postage stamps. 
and even now they're even smaller than that. But that was created like around, around 1975. And uh, just, for, just as a point of reference, uh, the people that worked at these computers at that time thought this was a toy. Uh, and when we, being one of the first to work on this toy, you know, we were kind of like put down like we were playing with some kind of toy, a toy which has now spawned this, uh, this entire uh, convention here. And that, they, as I said, they thought that was just a joke, really a joke. But um, I had a dear friend, and he saw this very ad of Popular Electronics in 75, that you could build your own computer. What a concept. It was a kit, it cost about $1,000 came completely disassembled and uh, he amazingly paid thousand dollars because he wanted to be the first person on the block with a home computer a concept that you all take for granted today and but uh, so he had to solder every chip resistor wire switch in this thing and as you can see unlike all your technology today this thing was pretty immensely complicated and it didn't really do much but, uh, lo and behold, he did it successfully. And that's, a, that's an important point. He had to do it very successfully. And go, lo and behold, you have your very first home computer in 1975. Cool as it is, it did not have a graphics, so you couldn't do an arcade game on it. Didn't have a text screen. Didn't have a keyboard. It had no screen at all. It had that. Switches and LEDs. And, um, incidentally, that's where I learned to program. This is uh, this is all you had. You basically you had to uh, enter in a you had to convert the code for the 8080. That's what it was to a to a binary code to a hex code and then down into I'm sorry hexed in binary backwards on that flip in the binary code on the switches and store it three part code and then slowly you would get a program that would maybe read the switches read the LEDs. And later on, you'd write a keyboard routine and a text screen. There was no graphics back then. So uh, that's where it all began for me. And um, many people took this very simple ship and created the first arcade game, which we are now worshiping you know, 40 years later. Pong was the first, one of the first arcade games we put a quarter in and got to play with the pals. It's amazingly simple. Um, one other electronic guru of that time went off and took that same chip and created this. This is a chess challenger. It was the world's first portable uh, artificial intelligence game. It actually could play a decent game of chess, and now it probably could beat almost anyone, but back then it could beat anyone who knew how to play chess fairly well, but it played a pretty decent game of chess. You entered in your move here, and then it would think about it and come back with a move there. So you could, and it could play itself too. So uh, that was some of the earliest things that these toys were being used for. Um, and a little bit more on uh, fidelity in a minute. And of course, the other people came along with uh, the early days of arcades, the, the first vector graphics, uh, asteroids. Black and white, though it was, it was a uh, VGA game. The Space Invaders, and of course the classic uh, character and highly successful game of Pac-Man all came along, all because of that, quote, toy computer. 
Ready? And now, my career began once again with Fidelity Electronics. They hired me because I had to switch in that code way back in 75, this was back in 78, to do a sequel game to their chess challenger. It was called the Bridge Challenger. I don't know if anyone knows how to play the card game of Bridge, but if you do, one thing, one problem with Bridge, of course, is you have to have four people. Not three, not five, not two. So if you want to play a, a, a game of bridge with humans, you need four dedicated bridge players. So what we were providing here was an ability to substitute one, two, three, even all four of the bridge players to watch the game play with itself and uh, play the, the card game of bridge. And again, it's an artificial intelligence game. It's, we had one of the earliest scan, optical scanners in the world and the cards that we had had scan bars and you would scan them in so that's how the computer knew what cards it had. And then we, we would bid it and play it and that's how we would play the game of bridge. But again, it's pretty primitive gaming. But by 1981, the arcade business was big. Arcades were as big as I am. This is skeleton ghost today, but I, I had to help my benefactor, but... No, yeah, that's true. Our uh, Galpy Ghost is uh, today the biggest arcade probably ever, but there were in the 81 arcades almost as big, and they did look sort of like that. And of course, the, uh, the more classic centipede came along, and finally, an American hit, Defender. These were the, the games that were coming out in 81. And uh, a company called Deep Golly, which was well known for their pinballs, decided, hey, we wanted to get into these, uh, this uh, lucrative market that was happening in 81. And initially, you know, the team didn't know how to do it. They didn't have a video game division. So they went off to Japan and, and licensed this one on, on the right, New York, New York. And Dr. knew the other game. I was, what was the other game? I couldn't find it on the internet. Y'all remember it? Juno first, yeah. Uh, those were just two Japanese licensed games, and uh, they were okay. And I don't think they were as big a hit as anything that was going on, but fortunately, they also had a dynamic, they hired a dynamic new team. I don't have any pictures of them, but their names were Holly Rubin and Ron Waxman. And by the way, this is Bensonville, where a lot of miracles uh, from Godley came from. A little bit Photoshop. They didn't have a neat sign like that, but it's, that is the actual building. Uh, but anyways, uh, they were given they uh, like leased this light location and decided, okay, we're going to actually make in-house video games. And they hired uh, a complete staff of people. And there's young me. Uh, they hired uh, Jeff and Dave on Dave who's on the uh, Skype, I see, um, and many others. And none of us had done video games, even my, my experience, as you can see, was uh, in uh, standalone artificial intelligence, simple games, and videos uh, is another le level different. So uh, they hired this, they, this is Tim Skelly. He uh, was the only one who had actually been in the arcade industry, I think since 79 or 78, thereabouts. Uh, so he was a veteran. And he was going to do their first game, which ultimately became Reactor. And uh, he was going to teach all us newbies. We were, everyone uh, was there and had never done a video game. 
so he was supposed to be a mentor to us, and he was also going to provide the first product for Gottlieb. And uh, so that's where it all began. So, first employee meeting. Uh, I want to ask you, uh, I had this nicely phrased, uh, what do you do when Ron Waxman, that's a, a drawing that Jeff did of Ron Waxman at the time, comes up to you and say, okay, we want you to do an original idea for a new arcade game. What do you do? Do you hide, run, or start sending out resumes? Or, and that's where I, pretty much how I thought at the time, think of a scene from a recent movie that you saw, the last 20 minutes was so cool. I said, okay, a game in which a superhero has to save humanity from the villains. And that game was, we that movie was uh, Superman 2. So now we have a game idea, and uh, I don't believe this is your drawing, right? This is Frank. So, yeah, uh, Jeff is a... Uh, Frank Shark. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I, I don't know. I thought it was your drawing, but... No, no, I don't even... Artistry has never been one of my things, so I didn't know it was Frank or you, and I don't yeah, think you're that... Yeah, one of our managers and uh, yeah. Frank Starshack, probably. Yeah, I think so. I think, obviously, Jeff is a way better artist as you're about to see. But anyways, yeah, this was our first meeting, and uh, like I say, I was, uh, was blessed to be with a very creative team, even though they had never done a video game before of Dave and, and Jeff here, and we just knocked ideas out uh, based on that simple premise of, okay, let's bring Superman to to the uh, to an arcade. Uh, so most of the concepts were there, and so many ideas, and we just rolled down. And, uh, and uh, the drawback was that our company was not able to get the license for Superman, or was not willing to pay for that license. Yep. Yeah, well, we'll get into licensing a little bit later, but, uh, all right, so, up here, um, what were we going to call this new game? Well, we thought about Video Man, but it wasn't likely. Protector, well, I don't know why, but it was no. Uh, for a long time, it was known as uh, Guardian. Actually, it was Guardian for quite a while, even when I... Eventually went out on test. Here's the uh, a screen marquee that was made up. Uh, going to here, and that's how it was when it went out on test uh, on several occasions. So Guardian. Guardian was almost the name it was going to be called, but I forget why we changed it again. But the winner, as you can clearly see on the original game and otherwise, was Argus. So, uh, over the course of the next year, uh, the team of everyone that was involved and myself, we finally went forward and created a complete video game. Um, the graphics in it, I think for 1982, when it came out, was superior to anything that was out there. I mean, uh, I mean, this, this was actually the first scene that Jeff threw up, and I mean, and it, it had a little bit of a Chicago flavor, you can see. Uh, it's not like it's called the Standard Royal Building, but it was at the time. And I'm not sure where the rest of his ideas, but this was all, all Jeff's ideas, and it was yeah. a good starting screen. Well, well we were very limited. Uh, we had, I think, 128 background characters. That's 8 by 8 pixels. So I kind of had to reuse a lot of them. So you see that in the design 
of these buildings. You see that in the design of the, uh, the trees. Um, we, we spent a lot extra actually on that statue in the middle because it was not reused anywhere else. Okay. But in addition to that, of course, we did, we did six amazing graphical scenes um, and at least 20 unique characters, if not more. Um, I was inspired because we were, we were launching the space show and I had been there for the lunar landing, but I inspired those seats and an urban and, and a bridge. And, uh, but and, I went, and, and I was able to reuse some of the, uh, the mountain scenery just by changing the color, you know. One of the things that I didn't remember from uh, long ago is we have this factory that cleans the rubble that falls from the villains. Uh, and that's all it does is it just cleans the rubble just for sanitary sake. And when I uh, saw the game, you can't really see it in this picture, I, I realized that Jeff had had the foresight, and this is how into the game he was, to change the construction worker to an astronaut construction worker. Little details that you failed to miss. I mean, this is why the team that I was working with was just amazing. You're welcome, honey. Anytime. So, yes, um, having done all this work for a year, how well did uh, Argus do in test? And the answer is, it did not produce enough of these. <laughs> yeah, and that was the uh, kiss of death back in the day. Because uh, the model for arcade was how much money did a game collect? Yeah. And if it didn't collect enough, they. They couldn't order. justify manufacturing it and uh, sticking it to the distributors and operators. So, um, Argus never saw any production. That's right. Yeah, I mean, when, as I say, uh, you know, not enough higher quarter count, there's no purchase orders in that. But, uh, nevertheless, uh, I just want to say that uh, everybody was, a, I mean, they did a, a phenomenal amount of work on this game, and it was truly a disappointment. Uh, you may ask how I took it when uh, Argus didn't uh, succeed, well, as the British say, with a stiff upper lip. I, I took it well. I mean, naturally, you know, I was ready to move on to the next next thing and and all that. But, but nevertheless, uh, these guys worked their tail off of the game, and, and fortunately they were rewarded with Golly's major success, Cubert. Uh, I mean, uh, Jeff and Dave, the sound effects that they brought to Argus, and it, it's as good as Cubert, as obviously. And Dave's uh, uh, use of the Voltrex on Cubert on and that, and other sound effects for the game, and your artwork. I mean, at least these two, under Warren Davis' programming skills, uh, produced uh, our first hit at, at, at Milestar and showing that they clearly had the talents there. <clears throat> so let's go uh, with the, on with the rest of the story. Columbia uh, owned uh, owned uh, Gottlieb and I guess they felt that Gottlieb was just an old pinball company so it was time to get a new name and so they came up with this new name called Milestar and um, Mostly, I think, because they like the cool star on the, on the M and such. But uh, other than that, I don't know why. You know, Gottlieb had been around for 60 yeah, years. No one, no one knew where that name came from or who was responsible for it. Yeah, just a cool marketing mood. They said, "Hey, we could put a star on top of the M," and, and that was good. Um, so we we had other things. Okay, so uh, as disappointing as my, Argus was to me, uh, even uh, Tim Skelly's reactor didn't 
That's well either, but at least it got produced, and uh, so it, it's a it's a matter of you know. It's always boiled down to play values, whether a game uh, does well or not. Right. As David Thiel has pointed out, Reactor was more of a subtle game, and uh, the things that 14-year-old boys like to do, which was blow things up and destroy things, you couldn't do that in Reactor. You had to uh, uh, play it more subtly, and uh, that was part of the problem with Reactor. Kind of a rare game today, hard to get a hold of, and a very challenging game. So uh, going back to tie-ins, we couldn't get Superman, and as say Columbia Pictures owned uh, Miles Star slash Gottlieb at the time, um, they wanted a, uh, our development team, not me, but uh, Chris and, and Matt, to do a tie-in to what was going to be their competition for the mega-hit Star Wars. They had a great idea that you would be talking about today, you know, 35 years later, I'm sure you all know the game. It was fantastic, a major success. It was called Crawl. Anyone? Okay. You don't? Well, anyways, the great, they were a great team. This is a great game. Unfortunately, Columbia, as all, I guess the marketing of any picture company thinks that every movie is going to be great, oversold the concept that it was going to be a Star Wars, which it never was. And so they had us develop new tie-in scenes that tie into the movie, which in order to understand the scenes, you're going to have to see the movie if you can find it on DVD or anything. But um, or, or you can see it in the remake. We understand there's going to be a remake of Crawl. So uh, maybe a remake of this game. Well, at least try to watch the game, but again, I think it won't have the success of the Star Wars, even when you consider the last three. But... Uh, so, uh, I'm sure that Matt, Matt and Chris uh, were not thrilled that uh, they spent an incredible amount of effort making a great game only to be tied to the dog of the movie. On a matter of tie-in, uh, the Three Stooges game, uh, Columbia's Three Stooges, and Sam Russo rightly thought that we should do a tie-in to this game, and um, part of the fun was that we, back then there was no uh, ability to digitize voice like it is now, we had to redesign our soundboard to sort of digitize human speech. And it was, it was a thrill to actually meet the authorized voice man for the three students. He could do all three voices. We were in an audio studio with our hardware guy and working diligently to get his voice recorded in the rather primitive digitizing. And again, this is, this is uh, as a tie-in game, I think this would be a, a dynamite... Um, iPhone game or something, because, I mean, it is our classic comic materials, and and it, it's a fun game. Well, and then, David, if you could just tell the audience here, who anxious and waiting, uh, the anecdote, Jim, tell us about the sounds uh, for artists. Well, one of the, one of the anecdotes is uh, there was a place in the game where uh, characters were tossed into the buildings, and, and then the buildings got ka-chunked and, and uh, rubble, building rubble fell down. And uh, but with the system we had, sampling anything like that was impossible. We didn't have enough space to hold more than about one and a half seconds of sound. So everything had to be some kind of algorithm that I wrote that made a sound. And making realistic sounds with an algorithm on a, on a very underpowered system 
was uh, challenging to say the least. But I needed a model to work from, to make my best shot at uh, trying to make rubble come off of a building. So I had moved my office by that point upstairs, and there was a balcony like overlooking the uh, warehouse where uh, games were being assembled. And so uh, I had Chris Brewer downstairs with some kind of cassette microphone, and I was upstairs and I was dropping bricks, trying to miss Chris, but hopefully close enough so he could record it, so then I would have a model of what I needed to do to have rubble. And that ended up as one of uh, the comics in uh, Tim's book. Shoot the robot, shoot mom, don't shoot the robot. Except he had it uh, shooting a watermelon into a wall from a cannon. But it was that, that's listen for that. And I came up with something that sounded like it. And that was the part, if I remember, that was the chunk of code that Warren was helping on. Uh, Tom can, I'm pretty sure that, that that was, while Tom was working on gameplay, Warren was working on rubble falling off of the left and right sides of the buildings. Yeah? No. He doesn't remember. I remember. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, Reactor... Reactor wasn't a commercial success, and we were. So I was finishing up Reactor and, and uh, working on the second game, and uh, it was still all very new to me and, and still very difficult. It, that soundboard was always difficult because of, it was very flexible but crazy hard to make a lot of sounds. So I worked very very hard on this, and I was. I'm sure, as, as Tom was, crushed by its, its acceptance in, in the focus groups and in the arcade. It uh, didn't test very well. And this was, the other anecdote was uh, Argus, Video Man, Protector, Guardian, was my first experience of a formally run uh, focus group. We went to uh, Mount Prospect, to the mall there and uh, kidnap some kids and put them in a room with uh, the game and we were behind a silver glass so we could watch them but they couldn't see us and then a professional it was Dave Birdie I think yeah it would have been Dave yeah yeah, yeah Dave was running this, this focus group and we were trying to uh, delve into the recesses of the player's brain, trying to figure out, you know, oh, what simple fix is there so we can get these uh, people to really love the game? And uh, they played it, and they played it. You know, the consensus was that they hated the trackball. They wanted to join. And we were all, you know, we were all in love with Trackball at the time. A lot of games developed at Gottlieb that never saw the light of day were were used to trackball. And uh, I, eventually, I came to terms with the fact that if you have a game like Reactor or Protector, where you move objects on the screen, but the objects can move back and, and alter your character, and you have no force feedback to that, that player just decides, wait, the trackball's busted. 
because I'm moving it this way, but the character got moved this way. And because there's no force there, they just kind of go, wait, the trackball's busted. Give me a joystick. Give me something, you know, that works. And so based on that focus group, uh, there was a joystick version of uh, the game that was tested, and I don't think it did any better, because that didn't make any sense. A trackball is always better at up, down, left, right positioning than a, than a joystick would be, but that's what the kids wanted. So that's what they said they wanted. And so that was the first thing I learned from, the, from this was, you know, never pay any attention to anything said in the focus group. It's a very, ex very expensive adventure in, in uh, foolishness. Thanks for reminding us of that. Bear that in mind. Do you still do focus groups? Pins. Nah. You know the great thing about coin op is the most one of the more democratic versions of, of product introduction. Uh, when you have an arcade, you just stick it there with no fanfare. You just put it out there, and then people will vote with their quarters. And uh, people have some awareness of, oh wait, I've never seen this before. So you get like one or two shots. And if you don't captivate them in, in uh, about three minutes, well, then they go on to something they know they like. They'll go play uh, Robotron. So, but it's... They're invisible and, and watch them play. And it's a fantastic way to... To uh, the success of your, of your product, then you can see, you know, you can tell by body language, you can tell a lot of things by the way people play the game. You can see how they're crushing it because of some hole you left in the game design, or you can see their frustration in something that you thought was fair, but players never perceive that as fair. And uh, so that that's you know, fo focus groups. Boy, you don't need focus groups. You just need arcades, and and so still. Uh, to a lesser degree, you know, I work in pinball now, and because pinball isn't operated by professional people that much, it's mostly collectors, less arcade testing is done. But still, on the current games that I'm, that I'm finishing up, The Hobbit, you know, they first put out a half dozen machines, and you know, they watch the coin reports, they keep track of every audit, they see which shots are being made, and which shots aren't being made, and all that is way more uh, real and useful than somebody in a white lab coat asking pointed questions. So no, fuck the screw for Well, thanks a lot, David. Thanks for checking in with us. Uh, always good to talk to you. And uh, we look forward to the next occasion. Uh, discuss maybe some ongoing projects. Well, uh, uh, just uh, I will be, for anybody who wants to say hello, I, I plan on flying into Chicago for Pinball Expo in October. Okay, fantastic. Uh, I may have up to four manufactured games at that show. It's the first time in my career where I've had four things uh, show up at the same time. They're all being made. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm excited. This this 2016, this is my 10th anniversary as a contractor doing this, and I'm, I'm very happy. Well, and as I've mentioned before, Tom and I are working on a new game. We hope maybe the new few sounds for us fit it in your schedule. All right. All right. Thanks again. So, bye, Tom. Bye, Mark. Bye, uh, bye Milwaukee.
Dave is a, a prototype that the Galloping Ghost put together in uh, conjunction with one of our old colleagues, uh, Dave Bonecutter, lent some of his technical expertise to get things going, but Doc found a cube board and uh, the, uh, the chips, all that information came from from uh, me. Perhaps Doc would tell us a little bit about that process. Hey everybody. Uh, and first off, I want to thank you two for making such a great game and just coming with and meeting with your fans and everything. It's been an amazing experience uh, to give people a game that they had never seen before. Uh, or very few, I should say, because when we launched the game, there was somebody that had played it back in 1982 and it was their favorite game then. So it's absolutely amazing to see people enjoy this game now and we really want to thank both of you uh, and all three of you for making such an amazing game that unfortunately didn't come out. Yeah. But uh, you might add that guy, the fellow Mike, he was like 14 back in that day and now he's got the world high score because this is the only copy in the world to, uh, to work on. <laughs> well, now we're able to track the scores on it. Again, Mike Vinicor was the one who had played it back in the day, and he came in and spent quite a bit of time uh, that, that on his first game, which, again, probably hurt your, your quarter count. Yeah, he's, what, at like the 300,000 mark? And uh, I think he's going give to give it another try this weekend. He'll be here tomorrow yeah. trying to break his own record. It's always it's great watching them play it, and it's a really cool game. And uh, definitely, thank you from everybody because everybody really seems to be enjoying it after all these years. And it's uh, again just spawned from a discussion that we haven't had in Wizard World. And uh, just thank you for making so many great games back then and and now. Thanks you for you and your crew for all the great work you did to bring this thing back to life. Thank you. Thanks everybody. And there you go. That was the Argus panel from the 2016 Midwest Gaming Classic at the Sheraton Hotel in Brookfield, Wisconsin. I'd like to thank Jeff Lee, Tom Malinowski, David Thiel, and Doc Mack for coming together to get that game into development and finished after all these years. I've played it, and as you can see by the footage, at the end of the panel it is a special game and basically you can look at it as a shooter and i mean basically that's what it is it's kind of like the game defender if you really want to compare it to something else is it my cup of tea eh, it's okay uh would i play it again i played it a couple times and uh you know it's it's not one of my favorite games but i think it holds a special place because it was actually prototyped to be set after the Superman movies that were out at the time with Christopher Reeve. So, you know, it may not be my cup of tea, but it could be your cup of tea. And uh, perhaps you could play it as well when you visit Galloping Ghost in Brookfield, Illinois, like I did. I have to say that Galloping Ghost is a pretty cool place. It is jam-packed from wall to wall with video games and there's a lot there that I've never seen and one of them was Argus amongst many many others if you haven't taken a trip to Galloping Ghost in Brookfield Illinois 
do yourself a favor and do that. It is a special place. And that's it for this episode of the Midwest Gaming Classic Podcast. Now, just a reminder, this was part one of a two-part series having to do with developers Jeff Lee and Tom Malinowski. Next week will be part two, and we'll be talking about the development of the very famous Qbert arcade game. So, until next time, take care, stay safe, and game on. When you decide to come out to this type of function, this type of experience, this type of gathering, Marvel Phenomenon, there is only one event to attend, the Midwest Gaming Classic, where you and the games are one. Classic. It's not just child's play.